based on those that I met and got to know, I think that many of its members might actually do well on the BCD theology tests I give that so many of you perhaps hate. They would do well in it. It's not because of my teaching. You see, I wasn't their pastor. I actually cleaned their toilets, among other things. And when you clean a place's toilets, I think you get a clearer idea of what makes it tick than you might working in other jobs there. I'm sure you could ask our, uh, some of our staff here in facilities that could attest to this. As a member of the building and grounds team, I soon learned that many members of the church would not look me in the eye if I passed them in the hallway. And in fact, they might not even acknowledge me if I was wearing this blue shirt that said facilities team. I remember well the Monday morning when I showed up for work and I was told that a youth group kid had thrown up in the back stairwell on Friday night. This is Monday. That was Friday. And they thought the right response was just to close the stairwell for Sunday services until the appropriate facilities person arrived on Monday to clean it up. I remember the day that I was given a key to access the new padlocks they put on the dumpster at the church so that no one would steal their trash. You see, you can know the identity of Jesus without truly caring about people who do not have the social standing that you have. And I wonder if any of you Christians in the room today see a little bit of yourself in Simon. Simon the leper represents those who have a right understanding of Christ but fail to care for the poor and the outcast at all. Our next characters have a bit of a different problem. The next characters we encounter are those some who question the woman's gift to Jesus. We know they are the disciples. This group appears to care greatly for the poor. So look in verse 4 where they ask, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 300 denarii at this time was roughly a year's salary for an average worker. So to put that in our terms, uh, I looked this up, it's $48,600 worth of perfume that was poured on this person's head. That's a lot of money. I bet there are a few people in here that could use $48,000 right now. Who objected? As I said, the other Gospels tell us clearly it was the disciples. You see, they've been listening. They've been paying attention. They've been with Jesus for a long time now and they've seen what He does and they've heard what He says. They've seen His miracles. They've heard His teachings about caring for those in need. And based on this teaching, they are concerned when the woman comes and wastes money that could have helped the poor. There's only one problem here. The disciples have failed to truly understand who Jesus is. We see this most clearly in Mark's Gospel back in chapter 8. Jesus asks His disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter is immediately able to say, The Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. But then Jesus goes on and starts to teach that the Messiah has to die. He has to be killed. And Peter rejects this and says, No, that's not true. Three times Jesus comes to the disciples and says, I'm about to die as we head into Jerusalem. Three times the disciples misunderstand Him or reject His teaching. And so here we are in Bethany, which is essentially a suburb of Jerusalem where He'll be killed, a mere few days before He will die, and the disciples still don't understand His work. And so we have to keep this in mind when we look at Jesus' answer to His disciples. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. 
You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Now, sometimes people misunderstand Jesus' statement, you will always have the poor with you, and they say, well, this means poverty is always going to be here. We don't really have to worry about that. Jesus is saying, don't worry about social justice. Don't worry about oppression. Any efforts we make there are not going to have an impact. However, the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry is a testimony against this interpretation. Whether it's his claim that he has come to proclaim liberty for the captives or his teaching that whatever you do for the least members of society, you do for him. What Jesus is actually doing here is he's prioritizing things. The disciples should know that Jesus is about to die. He's told them three times, and it's a common act of devotion and respect to anoint one who is dead so that you can reduce all those terrible smells associated with death. This is a standard use of perfume. And the twelve, the leading disciples, they never actually do this act. They've been told time and again that Jesus is going to die, but they never stop and they never spend any money to buy anything to anoint his body with. They don't believe him. When Jesus does die, what do the twelve do? They run away. They hide. The only people that come to embalm his body are a few of the women that have followed him and that actually understand the significance of Christ. But somehow this woman who enters Simon the leper's party, she actually understands what it means for Jesus to be Messiah. I don't know how. Mark doesn't tell us how. But she comes to anoint him in preparation for his death. And so here, Jesus rebukes his disciples for having incorrect priorities in putting matters of money ahead of matters of eternal salvation. Most of the disciples are very interested in helping the poor as Jesus demands, but they don't rightly understand Jesus. And Jesus reveals that one first has to understand his messianic identity. They first have to respond to the need that he must die for our sins and only then go forward on mission to help those in need. And here again, I think many parts of the Christian world today display similar tendencies. It's so easy to want to help people in need, but a lot of times it's much harder to want to share the gospel, to evangelize. But in my experience, you've got to have both to truly overcome social injustice. I work with a missions organization in Rwanda, and we try and get homeless kids off the streets. So obviously one of our big goals is to take a kid on the streets and get him off of the streets so he has a home, food, shelter, education, work opportunities, all of these things. But what we've found is that we also need to combine theology with this. You see, the homeless kids in Rwanda, many of them ran away from their homes because they were being abused. And many of them lived on the streets for years where nobody would look at them. Everybody treated them as nothing. And so we had to tell them the message, first of all, you're created in the image of God you have intrinsic value. Because after a number of years, they've started to doubt that. And when you're living on the streets, a lot of times you have to do terrible things to make ends meet. So we had to tell them the gospel that in Christ you can find forgiveness for whatever you had to do while you were out there. And what we've found is that kids who accept Christ's forgiveness and their own self-worth are the children who are able to take the financial help we give them and actually do something with it and be self-sustainable. But those kids who can't accept forgiveness or acknowledge their own worth never really make it off the streets in a lasting way. You see, it takes the gospel and efforts to help the poor to foster true transformation. And this is why Marx can never be right. I mean, it sounds great. Let's have a revolution. We'll take this. We'll sell it and make all of your 
tuition's a little bit lower. Marx said, if we eliminate religion, we can help the poor more effectively. But when his ideas were implemented to help the poor, millions died because the leaders of this movement lacked the very virtue that these religions were trying to foster. They had no moral character, and so they took the power they had and millions died. And by the way, since there are top uh, authorities in the college here, before I lose my job, let me clarify. Um, Sterling does care about keeping things inexpensive for you. It's not that we aren't committed to helping poor students. I've worked at a couple of different colleges, and Sterling, more than any other, uh, offers a large number of work-study opportunities. We're committed to keeping tuition rates down. Maybe not with a theology degree, but I guarantee you that we have faculty um, in the business department or criminal justice that with the type of degrees they have could make a lot more money elsewhere, but they're happy to be here with a lower salary. It's not that we're trying to rip you off and con you, or at least if we are, we're pretty terrible at it. More, it's that we believe that the most significant thing we can give you is the gospel. The most significant thing we can all do together is to worship God, and so we build this chapel, and we hold chapel every week. We find other ways to cut tuition costs. So I'm not a Marxist. Don't need to have my job taken. So we turn to this third character, the woman with the perfume. This woman illustrates for us the fact that right understanding of our Savior is the highest good. And out of this understanding, we're able to help those who are in need. We have to start by understanding who Jesus is, and then we respond to that by seeking to help those that Jesus helped in his ministry. We don't know much about the woman, at least Mark doesn't tell us much, except that she has perfume, and we know from the other Gospels that she's known to be a sinner. And there are two theories about her sins. The first theory is that maybe she was a prostitute, because this would have been the stereotypical sin that people would know about a woman in this time period. If the whole community knows her job, the whole community knows she's a sinner. The second theory, because we know she's wealthy for having this perfume, is that she's a very wealthy woman who must have acquired her wealth immorally, perhaps through deceit or exploitation or even theft. Either way, somehow this sinner, this woman, has come to understand who Jesus is. She hears that he's eating with a leper, and so she believes that Jesus will accept her as an outcast as well. So she knows at this point as much about Jesus as Simon the leper does, but she goes even further. Somehow she knows that Jesus will die. So she chooses to come and anoint him with this very valuable perfume. She has a right understanding of Christ, and based on this, she makes a dramatic response by using such expensive perfume on him. And we need to be careful and recognize that giving this perfume isn't just an act of worship. It also indicates a change in her actions. You see, if she's a prostitute, this perfume would have been used to attract customers. In this case, breaking the perfume and pouring all of it is a commitment to no longer live a lifestyle that brings others into patterns of sin. Now, I think it's more likely the case that she was wealthy by immoral means. And if this is the case, then her breaking the perfume and putting it on Christ shows that now she is committed to use whatever wealth she has toward kingdom purposes and not for her own gain. In this case, she's using her wealth to advance Christ's mission toward the cross. And so we still speak of this woman's actions today as an illustration of how Christians should respond to Christ and the poor. 
She alone illustrates the truth that while helping the poor is always essential, for a Christian, it is always secondary to a response. It's a secondary response to rightly knowing God. Or to put it another way, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, but the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We first love God who by His grace empowers us and then we go and we love others. This is the lasting witness of the woman with the alabaster jar. Now, some of you are here today and your mindset is a little bit like Simon the leper. You think because you understand the Bible that God would ask nothing more of you. Maybe God has personally helped you through difficult times so that you know that Christ can transform you but you've never stopped to ask and think what you're supposed to do with this transformed life that you have. You never looked around to see where other people are needing the good news of Christ or material help. The good news of the gospel is that you who are an outcast separated from God have now been brought close to God. But you were content to rest on that good news while turning a blind eye to those outcasts who may cross your path daily. Maybe like Simon the leper, you'd be happy to invite Jesus to dine with you anytime. Maybe you do that by praying before any meal. But go to the cafeteria and there were some people you wouldn't be caught dead at a table with. Simon the leper received no praise from Christ for that sort of faith. And I'm here to tell you today that there is no praise for you in that form of Christianity. Our Savior is a Savior who called the rich man to sell his possessions and help the poor. And the early church took this very seriously. And we see from the time of Acts onward, people who were committed to care for the poor in radical ways. And this doesn't mean you all have to go sell everything you have, but it does mean you need to find some way to radically care for the marginalized and the oppressed and the outcast and the poor. So if you're here today and you have no concern for those sorts of people, then I tell you that while you may know something of Christ, like Simon did, you appear to not know his kingdom. And so I challenge you to go home and read the book of Luke and see what Jesus teaches about the poor and then try and live accordingly. On the other hand, maybe you find yourself today in the situation of the disciples. You might be eager to go out on a mission trip this summer and help those in need, but you don't regularly spend time in worship or prayer or scripture reading. Perhaps you're bold to stand up for a certain justice issue and be helping refugees or maybe you're intent on becoming a physical therapist so that you can help people who are dealing with physical pain and the emotional struggles that come along with that. Maybe you care deeply about people's material and physical needs, but you're timid when it comes to sharing the gospel. Your timidity may be a testimony to the fact that at least subconsciously, you believe social justice is more important than the death of Christ and the forgiveness it provides. If that's you, I challenge you today to get your priorities straight. Help the poor, defend the oppressed, but above all, be sure that your work is rooted in a faithful acceptance of Jesus as Savior. And when you seek to help the oppressed by expanding his kingdom, be sure that you faithfully proclaim the king. Finally, some of you may not see a Christianity that much resembles what I've talked about today. Perhaps the most compelling part of my sermon was that beginning. I was talking about all the problems Christians have in wasting money. Perhaps you share these questions about Christianity's 
drive to help the poor. You think that's the highest goal. To that I respond, you can't take it with you. It's vitally important to help the poor, but there's nothing we can offer the poor that will last them beyond the grave. The gospel will last beyond the grave, for it is the offer of eternal life for all who believe. And so I ask you today, if you're very skeptical of this whole Christianity thing and you're here to get your chapel credits, I ask you not to judge the church by its contemporary Judases, who would willingly sell out the Lord for personal profit. Instead, I ask you to remember the story of the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. Though the disciples around Jesus didn't understand who he was, they didn't know the true identity of the man they followed, this woman didn't let their confusion keep her from going to Christ and trusting that her only hope of forgiveness lay in Christ's death alone. So she accepted that death in faith, and in response to this right knowledge of the Lord, she changed her life by committing to no longer be a part of systems of sin and injustice. So I challenge you today to go and do likewise. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as a body of believers, for those of us who are joined with you, Sterling College may stand firm in our commitment to serve you and to worship you, Lord. May our first priority be to love you, Lord, to worship you, to be devoted to the good news of your gospel. But may that first commitment never be abandoned by a second, where we are challenged to go forth and help those in need. Give us boldness to accomplish this. Give us wisdom to accomplish this. And where needed, Lord, give us repentance. I pray these things in Christ's name.